Is God merciful or is God just? <laughs> Amen. All right, sermon done. All right. Uh, <laughs> have you or do you struggle to view God as both merciful and just? Does one cancel out the other? If God is merciful, does that mean that he is light in the Department of Justice? Or if God is just, does that mean that there is a limit to his mercy in order for his justice to come through? Does his justice cause his mercy to run out or have a limit? If God is truly gracious, does that mean that how we live or how we respond to his grace does not, uh, doesn't matter? Because, hey, it's grace after all, right? Is God, if God is rightly just, does that mean that there is a leash to his grace? Meaning God is genuinely gracious, but only to an extent. Like if you take advantage of his grace or you seek to cheapen it in some way, does that then mean you have forfeited your right and access to his grace? How can we hold God's mercy and his justice together? How can we hold those two things together? How can we, with equal confidence, say God is a God of justice and he is a God of mercy? When you hear the phrase, many are called, but few are chosen, do you natu- what part of that stands out to you? Do you naturally lean in on the merciful side, thinking that God's call goes out to many? Do you relish in the mercy that God calls people not according to their worthiness, not according to their response or how they've lived, but on the basis of his gracious love alone? Or do you nervously lean in on the just side of that statement? While he may call many, the thing that matters in the end is that only few are chosen. Do you get caught up in the thought of what difference does it make that God calls many if in the end only a few of them are actually chosen? How are we to navigate these two attributes of God? What should be emphasized? Should we focus on God's justice so people are unbelievably clear on the seriousness of their sin? Or should we focus on God's mercy so that people know they can come to God, so that there's a message that they're hearing that attracts them to receive the mercy of God? Which one does the Bible emphasize? Well, our passage this morning, our parable this morning, the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, is meant to help us navigate this issue. It's meant to help us navigate these questions. It displays the depth and persistence of God's mercy. It shows us that when you have eyes to see it, you will see God's mercy at every turn in your life. However, it also displays the costliness of God's justice. It shows us that God's mercy does not cancel out his justice, but in some ways it intensifies it. So, if you are able and willing, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. 
But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and the wed- he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite uh, to the wedding feast as many as you find. And, as, and those servants went out to the, into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how, do you, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can be seated. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to understand your word, but much more than understand it, that you would use your spirit to transform us on the spot, that the power of your word as it goes out would actually change us, that we would not sit here and consume and sit passively by, but as your spirit works on us, that we would change on the spot, be transformed more and more into the image of your son. Only you can do this, and so we ask that you would. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our text, our parable that we're looking at this morning is preceded by two parables. So it's the last parable in a trio of Jesus' teaching in this section of Matthew. The way our passage opens clues us into that reality when it says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. But the them in verse 1 are the people and occasion that prompted Jesus to tell these three parables in Matthew. It starts at Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, where the chief priests and the elders come to the temple to challenge Jesus on his authority as they are hearing him teach in the temple. In other words, it's the religious leaders of the day that prompt Jesus because they challenge his authority as he is teaching in the temple, and his response to them are these three parables and the one that we're gonna, the last one we're going to look at. So that's the context from which our parable comes from. And Jesus goes on in verse 2 and says, The kingdom of heaven is like a royal wedding. The king is throwing a wedding feast for his son is what's happening here. And now the invitations have already gone out prior to uh, the point that Jesus picks up. They've already gone out, and as you would expect for such an occasion, everyone it went out to has accepted and said they would attend. But when the king sends his servants out to call everyone who is accepted, who has been invited, to our surprise, we're told that they would not come. Now, this doesn't typically happen because if you are invited, if you're called to attend a royal wedding or royal event of any sort, you're eagerly uh, doing what you need to do in preparation uh, to make sure you're able to attend, that you're able to attend in the right way, the right timing, with the right clothing. More than that, uh, a refusal to obey the king's call at any time is an unwise choice, to put it lightly, right? Because not only would you miss out on an extravagant event, but you are immediately putting your life and your family's life in danger. 
A refusal to attend a king's call is not simply a normal no of our RSVP to a, to a wedding of sorts. It's a stance of opposition to that king and his rule over your life. Therefore, we would not expect what happens in verse 4. After we hear the refusal in verse 3, we would not expect the response that we get in verse 4. Because rather than unleash his wrath on these people's refusal, the king tries again. He sends more servants out to tell them everything is ready, everything is prepared. He's telling them, in, in essence, the work, the preparation, and the planning are done. There's no more waiting. I've done all the work, and I've held back nothing when it came to the best. Cost was a non-issue for such an event as this. And so he says, once again, come experience the best of the best. Come celebrate my son with me. And in this, in this response, we get insight into the heart of what this king is like and what the kingdom of heaven is like. In one word, mercy. The king should have wiped them out and made sure that they don't try and start an insurrection, but instead he sends his servants again, once again, and he tells them, all you have to do is show up. Everything's been taken care of. All you have to do is show up. The work, the cost, the preparation, they're done. Come celebrate with me at the wedding feast of my son. I've done everything needed for you. Just come and show up. The king is making it clear that the feast is happening now. There's no more delay. There's no more waiting. Now's the time to celebrate. But in verse 5, we're told once again that they paid no attention to this second offer and went off doing their normal business. The call to come join the celebration of the wedding feast of the king's son means nothing to this group. They are just fine as they are to continue with their life as they have been. Now, a few words about the meaning of all of this, right? In the broader context, meaning of the narrative of the Bible as a whole, this first group represents Israel. They were the people to receive God's call first on their life and were to follow him. They received the promises of the covenant and the promise of salvation. And initially, when they first received this, they verbally accepted this call and the promise of God. However, as we read throughout the Old Testament, they continually turned their back on God and went back time after time after time again to live up to their verbal commitment. And when the time had come for the promises of God to be fulfilled in the Son of God, they were nowhere to be found. So that's the broader context of our passage in the parable. But there's a more immediate context. The immediate context is in, found in the book of Matthew. This first group of people are the religious leaders and the elites of the day. The thing that we talked about in Matthew 21, the people who prompted him to tell this parable. See, these people, they teach God's word. They traffic in the temple and in the religious spheres of their culture. And they are successful and well-off, well-to-do. We're told that when they don't pay attention to the uh, invitation, that they go back to their business, back to their farm. They own land, right? They're not peasants. They're not servants. They're well-off. They are the kind of people you would expect at a royal wedding, the worthy people of their society, but they want little to do with Jesus. That's the immediate context. 
And herein lies our first warning of the parable. That our success, status in society, and familiarity with God's call on our life in the Bible can all be things that cause us to miss out on the celebration of the wedding feast. Meaning that the areas in life that seem to be going best or okay can often be the areas that we are blind to our need for a king, our need for a God. So don't be fooled to think that you are simply apathetic to God in these areas or that it's not a big deal because you aren't really doing anything wrong. It's just neglecting the reality that there's a king in your life. But what you're really doing is snubbing God and declaring that you are God and king of your own life in these areas of your life. You are living as if you don't need the king. And the easiest places to do this, as we see here in the parable, are in the areas that you have been most successful and done the best in. Sure, maybe you made a verbal commitment at one point in your life. Maybe you prayed the prayer. Maybe you walked down an aisle in a church. Or maybe you give money regularly to the church. But your life is lived like this first group of people where you pay no attention to the call of God on your life during the week. Lest you think I am making too big of a deal about this approach uh, to the life and stance towards God, verses 6 and 7 go even further. They show us the reality when our hearts are like that and the ultimate end that that heart leads to. The stance, that stance towards God and way of life that might seem benign is actually a declaration of war against the king. And listen, you don't win <laughs> in the end. You won't win in the end. Now it is here in verse 7 that we see God's justice, right? We've seen his mercy and the invitation and the call and the patience to send it again. But now war has been declared and now we see the clarity of his justice. He mercifully calls you. He does all the preparation and work. He gives you ample amount of chances to respond to his call, his mercy in that sense is over the top, right? But if you refuse, you will experience what comes with that refusal, which is his just wrath. There is one king in the kingdom of heaven, and it is not you. Do not confuse God's kindness of giving you time to respond and submit to him as weakness is part of the warning here. It is at this point in the parable that some people go, see, his justice wins out. His justice is emphasized. His justice is what we need to pay attention to. I knew it. I knew he was more wrathful, punishing kind of God than he is a merciful, forgiving God. That that may be a more attractive message so we present it more, but I knew it. He, he is a just God who punishes sin. But that is a premature conclusion. Because the parable's not done. <laughs> There's more to it. The original guest lists Israel, the religious leaders, and the, the elites refuse to come and they get wiped out. In this parable, we see that those who seem worthy to us, the high ups, the important and impressive people who normally fill guest lists of those kind of important events, we're told are not worthy for a feast such as this. They have proven in their response to God's call that they are unworthy to attend such an event. But the feast is still ready. 
right? The celebration is still on. Just because they didn't show up doesn't mean it gets canceled. Therefore, the king broadens his invitation beyond the original guests, beyond Israel and the religious people. And now he goes to the ordinary people, the people who can be found in the streets, the people whom society would deem as unworthy to attend a dinner party at their own house, more or less a dinner party uh, with the royal wedding and the son and the king. But it's those people who are invited, and it's those people who fill the seats of this event. Now, in this invitation, there's no limitation. There's no exclusion. There's no just one group of people who are being invited. As we are told in verse 10, they gather all whom they found. Everyone. That's not exaggeration. They gather all who's found. And they, in case you doubt it, they gather both good and bad. Isn't that interesting that they tell us they gather good and bad? Now, in the bro- again, in the broader big- biblical narrative, the context of the Bible This is depicting what happened when Jesus came, when he showed up. That depicts the offer of the gospel now goes out to everyone. The offer of a relationship with God is offered up to everyone. Meaning it's no longer just the Jews that are invited. But now the invitation and call goes out to both Jew and Gentile. In the more immediate context, the offer of the wedding feast and the gospel is not only to the religious elites, of the day, the quote-unquote good people of the society. But the invitation extends to the unclean, to the sinner, so that no one is left out. Tax collectors and prostitutes are now included in this invitation. It is those kind of people, good and bad, who fill the wedding feast of this royal wedding. This is what the kingdom of heaven's like. It is a free invitation to everyone. A free invitation that goes out to everyone, good and bad. So come and join the wedding feast is the offer of the son of the king. And now the mercy people speak up, right? I see, I knew it. I knew it. I knew mercy wins the day. I knew God was merciful so much so that anyone can come. The good and the bad, anyone can join. No one's excluded. And his justice can be put aside now. It's been taken care of. Maybe God of the Old Testament was just and wrathful, but now Jesus has come, right? He's no longer like that. God of the New Testament is filled with mercy, not justice, not wrath. It's what the mercy people say. The truth is, most commentaries I consulted Uh, as studying for this passage, they more or less landed on one side or the other. I'm making kind of an extreme point in how I'm presenting it, but essentially that's where they land. They land on one side or the other of this. They either thought this was showing God's mercy or his justice. They all put most of the emphasis on the first ten verses of this parable. But the key to understanding What this king, what God is like, and what the kingdom of heaven is like is found actually in the last few verses, verses 11 through 14. And the truth is many commentators don't know exactly what to do with this section because they prematurely make conclusions from the earlier part of the parable. But in this last section, the king joins the guests 
And in joining them, he sees a man who had no wedding garment. The clothes he was wearing, we're told, were not appropriate. Not appropriate to be worn at an event like this. Not appropriate uh, in this place, at this wedding event. He was missing the proper wedding attire. Initially, I was sympathetic to the man's situation, right? I mean, he just got called off the street. He just got called off the street. He didn't have time to plan like the original guest list. When would he have had time to go home to change or have time to go shopping and get the proper wedding garment? Also, there's a really good chance that he didn't even have uh, such clothing because he couldn't afford it. He's coming from the street. He was not successful like the first guest. He's on the street. But when asked the question by the king, the man is speechless before his accusatory question about his attire. And so he ends up getting thrown into the outer darkness. So there's two things that we have to ask at this point. One, why is he the only one getting asked this question? Right? We're told these people came from the street. Why is he the only one getting asked this question? And the other one is, why is he silent? Why is he not pleading his case like I just did? Of Maybe I don't have enough money. Maybe I just came off the street. Maybe I didn't have time to go get that. Well, the answer to why is he the only one getting asked this question has to be because he's the only one who was not wearing wedding attire. He was not wearing wedding attire. So the other people that didn't have time or money for the proper clothing either, how did they have proper wedding garments and attire for this event? Answer, because the king had to provide it for them at his own expense. So the king clothes the guests in the proper wedding attire. Which leads us to the next question of why is he silent before this question? He's silent because he refused to enter the wedding feast on the king's terms, which is accepting his clothing, accepting his covering of what he was wearing. Rather, what he did is he accepted the call, he accepted and followed through with the invitation, but he tried to enter the feast through his own doing or with his own clothing, so to say, right? The man is silent because he has no excuse, and more than that, he has no remorse. There's no sense of remorse or sorry. There's no excuse for him. He refused to be covered by the king's clothes. And he's going in on his own terms. So, is the king, is God, merciful or just? As Joel already told us, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. He is merciful. The invitation to join the wedding feast goes out to everyone. No one is excluded or favored. No one forfeits the opportunity to get the call or join in the celebration of the wedding feast of God. He is merciful in his patience. And he is long-suffering for those of us who delay, for those of us who wait. But the point of the parable is saying no more. There's no more time. Now's the time to join the wedding feast. But he's also just because while everyone is called to come, you can only come on his terms. You can't come on your own. If you deny the call, the invitation or the clothing, you will suffer the consequences of seeking to be your own king or do it your own way. 
the perfect and clear picture of God as just and merciful together at the same time is seen in the one telling us the parable. You see, the king closed the people off the street, both good and bad, with the needed wedding garments at his own expense. He takes people who are not worthy to attend his son's royal wedding feast and he makes them worthy by covering them with his royal garments. He does this at no cost to them, at no cost to themselves. He is astoundingly merciful in that. And he can do this at no cost to the guests because he willingly endures, absorbs, and suffers the cost himself. It is not free, even though it's free to the guests. It's actually beyond costly. But he takes that on himself. He is just because the cost must be paid, either by you, if you choose to try to enter through your own way, or by him, if you allow him to cover you in his clothing. This is what we see happening on the cross, isn't it? Jesus is covered by and becomes our sin on the cross so that we can be covered by and clothed in his righteousness. Jesus is silent before the accusations of the people put before him because he knows he's there to receive the Father's just wrath and punishment that our sin deserves. He gets all of God's justice towards our sin so that those covered in his righteousness can silence the accusations of condemnation and live under the banner of God's beautiful mercy. The question is not, is God just or is God merciful because he's both? The question is, whose clothing are you wearing? Hat. Have you repented of your attempts to save yourself and received the clothing of the king? That's the question. Whose clothing are you wearing? The good and the bad are both clothed. Did you catch that? The good and the bad both needed the king's clothing. What that means is that the thing that keeps you from the wedding feast of heaven are not your particular sins, but it's your unwillingness to repent of your sins of, and confess of your need to be clothed by righteousness of another. The thing that keeps you out of heaven is that you try to do it on your own. You try to be your own king. It's not your particular sins. It's the sin of not willingly taking the covering and clothing of Jesus' righteousness because you're depending on yourself. Many are called, but few are chosen. So that's the question. Do you have his clothing? Is, are the king's wedding garments the clothing you gladly wear? Because you know there's no hope outside of it. And if you do, if you accept that invitation, if you take his covering to cover your sins, then the invitation is let's join a celebration. Let's let 
the celebration start now. Amen.